Hello, and welcome to the LARB Radio Hour, brought to you by reader-supported LA Review of Books. I'm your host, Eric Newman, the Gender and Sexuality Editor at LARB, and I'm joined in the studio today by LARB Managing Editor Medea Ocher and LARB Editor-at-Large Kate Wolf. Hi, Medea and Kate. Hi. Hello. <laughs> it's a non-committal, just hello. I'm here. Okay, so after we're finished taking roll call, today we have Medea and Kate's conversation with writer and memoirist Danny Shapiro, who's the author of Hourglass, Slow Motion, and Devotion, who joined my co-host to talk about her new book, Inheritance. So I have not read Inheritance. I wasn't there. So what's it about? So Inheritance is about Danny's experience taking a DNA test and in the results, finding out that she is not, in fact, the daughter of her father, that the man that she had always thought was her father is not, in fact, her father, and that she is not Jewish. And, <laughs> and this revelation really complicates her life because she had long identified herself with the Jewish faith, mm. with her father particularly. Her father was Orthodox. and, and a, Was right, her and mother Jewish? Yes. 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 Oh, well, I mean. Yeah. Done deal. I mean, right? for you to Still. say, <laughs> securing your parentage. But I mean, it, I think it was a quite a shock. Well, I can understand right. the thing about like suddenly feeling like, oh my God, my I don't have the parents that I thought that I had, right? And I don't have this whole like lineage that I thought that I had. But yeah. why does it become a crisis for her? Well, like- I think it becomes a crisis because she had long identified and built her relationship to all aspects of her life, including her writing um, and her memoir work around her family and around Mm. what she had grown up thinking was her family and in particular her relationship to her father. And so this revelation that in fact this man that she had always cherished and whose relationship she treasured was not in fact the man who was her parents And that her parents neglected to tell her this fact. Right. And and, and hid it from her for for her entire life. Yeah. Now that's the real tea. Yeah. Yeah. That's the real problem. And it seems like for a long time, you know, people had commented on her looks and had often said, well, you're not, you're not Jewish. She's blonde and blue eyed. And, and so part of the revelation was sort of squaring that experience Ah, with what she had found out to be. It it really does read like a thriller. It does, it, and a detective story. Yeah, because it's just, you know, she's uncovering the information slowly and finding it and looking, you know, it's like, what are you going to find out next? Oh, my God. It's <laughs> it's it's a very, very enthralling book, I have to say. Yeah. Well, okay, so wait, Great. before we get to that conversation, though, have either of you ever taken one of these DNA tests? Yes. Oh, you took You one? did? I did, yeah. Why did you take it? Uh, I took it because it was given to me for Christmas okay. by my now mother-in-law. Um, and I joked that it was she just wanted to um, check the <laughs> she purity wanted to firm of my up. race. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> before we we, you know, really settled the deal. Mm-hmm. And it was interesting. I I also found out something that I was not anticipating. Uh, can you can you share that? I are found you- out that I am not at all European or Ashkenazi Jewish. I knew that I was a Sephardic Wait, Jew. Yeah, right. Okay. Um, oh, you are. I'm Sephardic, but it said my breakdown was sort sort of surprising. So the results were <laughs> that I am 50% Georgian slash Turkish. Those are apparently the same category, um, which also kind of makes sense. And then I think 30% Iranian and then some percentage Afghani and Middle Eastern. I, not terribly surprising, though, based yeah. on the kind of geolocation of, yeah. of Georgia. But I had assumed because of the colonization of that area ah. by the, the Soviet Empire and by the Russian right. Empire at large, that there would be some sort of 
mixing within the family. Right. And just because it seems like that's what happens in colonized countries. Right. Um, but no, yeah, I had nothing. No Slavic, no Ashkenazi Jewish, no Eastern European at all. Full on Middle Eastern. So now you don't have to pretend to like Knish anymore. <laughs> I don't, but I love it anyway. <laughs> You've never done you so you've never taken a DNA test. Well, I have Kate? one waiting for me, but I heard that if you take it, then the company owns your DNA. <gasps> right. Ooh. Copyright they copyright you. So I just I didn't want to get into that, but maybe there's a secret that I am I hiding that is... from. <laughs> maybe there's right. something maybe I don't want to know. That's what my thing would be. I feel like I don't necessarily want to know. Also, I'm never that concerned with all the lineage stuff. I know for many people that's like a fantasy of like wanting to find out who their ancestors were and stuff. But it's like, maybe it's like the thing as a queer person that I'm like, I have no ancestors. Like they're, <laughs> they're all invented. They're all literary lineage or they're something all, like they're that. They're all Stonewall. They're all Stonewall. <laughs> um, but like that, yeah, it's just, it's never been a thing that I've wanted to know. I do have, and this is precisely why I wouldn't do it. I would love to know about it for medical things. And I feel that that could really throw me down a rabbit hole that I would never get oh, out of. That sounds dangerous. Yeah. WebMD style. Yeah. yeah. Where yeah. it's like, ooh, is, it, is the prostate cancer going to come now? What about tomorrow? What about tomorrow? You know, these are my risk factors. Like, I would just, I would never leave the house, I fear. Yeah, so maybe don't do that. Yeah. All right. But what we should do is get to this conversation. Let's nice. do that. All right. <laughs> We are here with Danny Shapiro. Her latest book is called Inheritance, a memoir of genealogy, paternity, and love. Danny, thank you so much for coming to the show. It's great to be with you. So I think we should start off by just giving listeners an idea of what the book is about. Sure. So in the winter of 2016, my husband was interested in doing a genealogy test, you know, just kind of recreational genealogy, just curious about second cousins and third cousins and maybe some geographical details, Yeah, the reason why most of us do it when we do. And he asked me if I wanted to do it too. And I so easily could have said no, because I knew exactly where I came from. I knew my family tree really pretty extensively. But instead, for some reason, I said, sure. And we sent away our kits. And then when my results came back, they, over a period of time, not very long period of time, but a few weeks, revealed to me that my beloved dad, who raised me, had not been my biological father. When you looked at the results in the beginning, that wasn't totally obvious to you? Or that's a very tense moment in the book, and your husband is the one who's kind of breaks the news. Pushing me a little bit. Yeah, no, it, <laughs> yeah. Wasn't, it wasn't totally obvious to me. So the first thing that was revealed was the breakdown of my ethnicity. And I would have expected that I would have been close to 100% Eastern European Ashkenazi because both of my parents were Eastern European Ashkenazi. And it showed me to be 52% Eastern European Ashkenazi. Mm -hmm. So I saw that and what I thought was, well, maybe all Jews are 52% or, you know, maybe the diaspora, pogroms, you know, maybe right. it just is mm -hmm. the way it is for all of us. Or, and this went on for much longer, actually, this particular train of thought, maybe the company just got it wrong. Right. Maybe they made a mistake. So I wasn't alarmed by it. I was sort of gently puzzled. It was kind of nothing more than that. And then a little while later, maybe a week or two later, 
My husband, who was much more engaged with this process at that point than I was, he has a background as an investigative journalist. He already was really feeling a sense of something's up. And so he was keeping an eye on my page on Ancestry.com. And what he saw was that a first cousin had appeared on my page. And I know all my first cousins. So this was really mysterious and deepened my certainty that Ancestry.com had made a mistake. Oh, you still thought it was a I mistake. I did. I did. But then in order to clear it up, I have a much older half-sister who was my father's daughter from a first marriage. And I wrote to her and I asked her if she, I had recalled that she had said years earlier that she had done one of these tests, like right when it started being consumer friendly at all. And I wrote to her and I said, do you still have your results from the DNA test you did? And she did. She emailed the results to me. And there is a site called GEDmatch where you can upload two DNA kits side by side and see how they're related. Mm -hmm. And that was the moment. So it took, I write in the book, it took 0.04538 seconds for GEDmatch to just reveal in this series of completely unfamiliar sort of equal signs and greater and lesser signs and numbers that we were not related. Our most recent common ancestor was like five generations, which, you know, you and I are probably more closely related than (laughs) I was with my half-sister. And your husband puts it again in a really sort of stark way where he's like, no, no, you're not half-sisters. You're not any kind of sisters. You're no kind of sisters, yeah. And at that point, I knew, I mean, one could have thought, well, either it means my father isn't my half-sister's father or wasn't my father, but it all started pieces of a puzzle that had been a lifetime in the making started kind of just coming together very, very quickly. Although I did insist that my husband go downstairs and call Ancestry.com and speak to a supervisor. Because in your background, there had been some question about your origin in your own family, because you are blonde, blue-eyed. People had called you out and said, maybe you're not Jewish. They said things like, there's no way you're Jewish, or you can't possibly be Jewish. Or, you know, notably, there was a much older woman, a Holocaust survivor, Mrs. Kushner, who patted me on the head and said, little blondie, we could have used you in the ghetto. You could have gotten us bread from the Nazis. That's an incredible comment (laughs) to (laughs) give a child, but also a really incredible part of your story. Well, and it always stayed with me, Mm -hmm. but I thought I had one narrative for the reason why Mrs. Kushner's comment had stayed with me, which is that it's really quite something to say that to a child. And I felt sort of guilty and strange. And what if I had been alive at another time in history? I could have helped save lives. I mean, whatever goes through a three or four-year-old's mind. But that conversation with Mrs. Kushner came back to me, as did many, many other conversations, because it had been a tremendous part of my identity that I was told all the time that I didn't look Jewish. And it contributed to a feeling of otherness and of kind of not making sense in my family. So you found out this initial shocking truth that your father was not your father, and then you're just set adrift. And then what happened? I'd like to also talk about how you were processing this information. Were you hurt at first? Were you just in disbelief? I mean, how did you start to assimilate this insane knowledge? I was in a state of shock. It's so hard to really get across the feeling of being certain of your parentage for 54 years at that time. And that certainty 
just being, I mean, that was the narrative that I understood about my life is that I was my father's daughter and I was my mother's daughter. And I was very close with my father and not close with my mother. So, I mean, an irony here is that the biological parent here was not someone I ever felt bonded to. And as it turns out, the non-biological parent was the one with whom I had like a soul connection and still do. But the feeling was, well, then who is my biological father? How did this happen? And it was like my roots had just suddenly been cut off. And I am someone for whom that was extremely important. As a writer, I had written book after book about family secrets in one way or another. And my memoirs were very much an attempt to put my father together. He died when I was 23. And I was always in some way trying to understand him through my writing. It was a driving force in my writing. And so suddenly, this life's work, both as a human being and as a writer, was kind of upended. And we were traveling. And this discovery was made the night before we were flying across the country. We live in Connecticut, and we were flying to San Francisco. And you can't get there on one flight. So we were in a number of airports on a number of airplanes. And I kept on having this feeling as I was walking through the world of who's my father and men of a certain age walking by me, you know, in the airport or gliding by me on those moving walkways. It was like that children's book where the little bird perches on the nose of the dog and is like, are you my mommy? You know, like <laughs> yeah. it's, it was just this feeling of such alienation. That was the initial feeling, was a kind of stunned and shocked and alienated feeling. But my mind was also going a million miles a minute in a kind of mode that had to do with trying to solve the mystery, mm. desperately, urgently trying to solve the mystery. And it does sort of become, I almost don't want to give it away, because the process of how you and your husband and then a friend who suddenly becomes a partner in this intimate mystery. It's almost a detective story, right? Where your your husband comes in, he says, oh, I have the name, but I think I got it backwards. And it's the, kind of amazing. The name of the first cousin. Right. The name of the yeah, first cousin. That's yeah. right. In retrospect, and by the way, I really don't think in terms of, as I've been on tour for this book, there are no spoilers in this book because it's ultimately- Yeah, you know what happens. You know what, <laughs> you know what happens within the first 25 pages. Mm -hmm. It's not about the what happens. It's about the why yeah. and the how and the deeper history of it and- all of that, at least to me, that was what was most important about it. But to me now, when I think I'm so in awe of the fact that I had just enough clues, and one of those clues was this first cousin. If this first cousin had not been on my Ancestry.com page, I would have just been left in a massive mystery. I would have been able to know that my father wasn't my biological father, but I would have known nothing more. And then there had been a conversation with my mother that had taken place many years earlier. My mother was also long dead at this point, but many years earlier, I had a conversation with her in which she let slip that I had been conceived in an institute in Philadelphia. And those were the words she used. She used the word institute, not clinic, not hospital, not doctor's office. And so very easily, my husband and I were able to, like sitting in the airport, Google Philadelphia and institute and famous doctor who was famous for being able to, as my mother put it, track precisely when a woman's ovulation was peaking. Well, there was only one dude who was doing that in the early 1960s, and this was the guy. And he had his own eponymous institute in Philadelphia. So it was clear that that was where I had been conceived. But in that conversation that I really don't believe my mother ever intended to have at all, I think my mother was triggered by the word Philadelphia when she and I happened you to be together. Bumped into a friend. Bumped into a friend. Right. In my graduate program, I brought my mother to a reading, and my mother said, where are you from? My friend said, Philadelphia. And my mother... I think 
was actually triggered by it and just blurted out, oh, my daughter was conceived in Philadelphia, which was such a bizarre thing. That's I mean, a weird thing to say. Really yeah. weird. I mean, like 25 <laughs> years old. And like at that point, you've either heard the story of your conception or you haven't, or you, but right, you're right. Not, not hearing it. You're being, not curious. Usually. Not curious. Not yeah. curious. No. Ew. You uh, know? Yeah. <laughs> so, we get it. Right. <laughs> So because of that long ago conversation, I had known that my parents had had trouble conceiving me, that I had been conceived by artificial insemination using my father's sperm in this institute in Philadelphia. But I also knew, because I had at the time, all those years earlier, gone to my half-sister to ask her if she had known anything about that, I also had known, because my half-sister told me this, that there had been a practice in those days of mixing donor sperm with the intended father's sperm, Mm. that that was something that was a practice, not just in this institute, everywhere. It was regularly done from the beginning of artificial insemination all the way through into the 1970s. This was considered a completely reasonable Mm. thing to do. So I understood. I mean, it would have been reasonable for most people to discover that their father isn't their biological father to think, well, my mother must have had an affair. I never thought that. I knew. My mind went straight back to that conversation all those years ago. And one of the things both psychologically and literarily that I find really interesting about it was the conversation was utterly clear to me. I remembered everything about it. I don't doubt my memory about anything, including just even the way that the light was coming into the car and the way my mother looked and her precise language. Mm. And that gave me a huge clue that I wouldn't have had otherwise. One thing I think is so interesting about the story, and when I was reading it, I was thinking about all the various couples I know who have used other people's sperm, you know, mostly queer couples, and their parentage is mixed. And it usually seems to me like not a big deal. And I've had arguments with my husband, oh, it doesn't really matter who the biological father is or mother. I mean, what does it matter? It's about the person who raises the child, and he's always disagreed with me. And in this case, I I wondered, of course, it's a huge piece of information to learn that the parent you thought you had was not your biological parent. But I wondered for you if it was more about that information or the fact that your parents had kept this secret from you for your whole life. I mean, if you were able to kind of pull those apart and see which was harder. Yeah, no, I spent the last three years doing nothing but pulling those ideas apart because the initial feeling that I had was my parents couldn't possibly have known this. It was the easiest thing to feel that somehow they were fooled by the Institute and the Institute just went ahead and introduced donor sperm without telling them. It was much more comfortable to feel that my parents had not spent our shared lives together harboring that kind of secret from me. But I couldn't get anybody on board with my research to agree with that theory of mine, not experts, not people who were around at that time who had knowledge of the Institute or knowledge of reproductive medicine at the time. I've pretty much come to the conclusion that my parents really did keep a secret from me. I think that they also kept that secret from themselves largely, and they were able to do that because there was a tremendous amount of euphemism that went into these practices at that time. My parents would have been told this was a treatment to help boost your chances, and you'll never really know whether the child is yours or not. But what that does, I think it's psychologically so altered and warped the very atmosphere of our lives together, because our lives together were based on a secret. And then to go through life with the certainty that I knew who my biological father was, let's just talk about the practical issues surrounding that. I was giving incorrect medical history for my whole life. 
and I was confidently giving it, which is completely different from growing up knowing your donor conceived and you don't have that information about your biological father or mother, for that matter, or growing up knowing that you're adopted, then that knowing and the knowing that you don't know becomes part of your identity and also part of the way that you move through life. Being formed by what you don't know and not knowing that you don't know it is, I don't know, can I curse on this podcast? Yeah, sure. Uh, such Please. a mindfuck. <laughs> it's such a mindfuck to have. And when I think back to my childhood and even to my young adulthood, so formed by that secret, by that lack of knowledge, by the sense that I felt other, I felt different, I felt like I didn't belong. And it wasn't just the not looking Jewish thing, it was really a feeling that was pervasive that every single person that I encounter who has had their identity kept from them as children feels that, mm. that feeling of sort of alienation. And when you're a child and you have that feeling of alienation and there's no reason for it that you can pinpoint, you turn it against yourself. You are listening to the LARB Radio Hour, recorded at KPFK in sunny Studio City. Medea and Kate have been speaking with Danny Shapiro, author of Inheritance. We'll return to that conversation in just a moment, but first, we have this week's book recommendation. We have Sam Lipsight in the studio with us today. Sam's most recent novel is called Hark, and Sam is here to recommend a book for us. Sam, what book are you going to recommend? Well, I'd like to recommend a book called Trump Sky Alpha by a wonderful writer named Mark Doten. And uh, I think it should be out next month. It's hilarious, frightening, sort of a dystopian tale uh, that begins with uh, a man we, we're familiar with, Donald Trump, as president, flying around in this blimp which and causing... Well, I'm not going to give away too much of the plot, but causing a horrible, earth-shattering event that forces a kind of new generation of people to, to reinvent reality. Oh, that sounds horrifying. <laughs> um, <laughs> I actually have that book on my desk, okay. and I've been meaning to read it. What brought you to Basically, the book? Basically, well, I know, I've known Mark, and I was a big fan of his earlier book, The Infernals. But this one is a really kind of a brilliant exploration of, of the Internet but from the perspective of someone investigating it historically after it's over. So oh. that, it's a kind of interesting take. As a document of a past yeah, civilization yeah. kind of thing? Do you fear that we're in the midst of Trump flying in a blimp and creating a new civilization? Because it I, seems like it we might be. I think that's happening even this morning. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, okay. Well, on that note, Sam, will you tell us the name of the book again and the author? Trump Sky Alpha, Mark Doten. Thank you so much. That was Sam Lipsight. His most recent book is called Hark, a novel. We now return to Medea and Kate's conversation with writer and memoirist Danny Shapiro, author of Inheritance. Something that struck me in the book is that that feeling of alienation it wasn't that you had just been unmoored from your parents, and this is something that I hadn't thought of, but that you were had inadvertently passed that on to your own son, and that it so it, and it struck you that oh, I've been teaching my son 
a family history that is actually not his family history. And so it, you kind of become unmoored from both generations by this news. I felt unmoored for a long time, and I don't know that I will ever feel completely moored again. Yeah. But that changed over the course of the last few years oh. and very much over the course of writing Inheritance because um, I came to the feeling that for 54 years, those ancestors were part of my psychological history. They were, they were my psychological ancestors. And so they still are. It's, it's not like that changes because we're not, in fact, biologically related. Mm-hmm. Um, and yet at the same time, because I was able to find my biological father very, very, very quickly, and because ultimately he uh, supplied, you know, family history to me, and again, not a spoiler, but, you know, that I, I got to know him, there's this other family history that is biological um, that's not nothing. It's not everything, but it's not nothing either. And I sort of feel like I, my inheritance in some way or like the way that I, like what I, what I end up sort of dealing with in my life at this point as a writer and as somebody who's been thinking about identity for many years is that, you know, I, I, I did an event the other night here in LA with a, with a, a rabbi here, Rabbi David Wolpe. And Wolpe began our conversation by saying, so does this feel like sort of divine intervention that you end up having been a writer for all these years and now you have this story to tell and that you're the only person who could tell it? Or does it feel like this is what formed you as a writer and this is why mm-hmm. you've been writing toward this kind of not knowing and some, you know, and and I paused and I said, can I, can I say both? <laughs> <laughs> because that's actually what it feels like. You know, in the end, I had never really given any thought to nature versus nurture. I don't think you do when you're growing up thinking that you know your own biology in that way. It sort of doesn't matter because you're getting both. It's a cocktail of nature and nurture when they've actually been separated out. So, for example, like when I first saw my biological father on a YouTube video, he was gesturing. He was behind a lectern. He was giving a lecture on medical ethics and um, of all things. Very ironic. <laughs> no, it's yeah. like you really cannot, <laughs> cannot make this shit up. Um, but what I noticed was the way he was moving his hands. And it's what literally what I'm doing right now as I'm talking to you. And I noticed the way that he was running the Q&A. And it was a quality that he had that I recognized as my own. And over time, and when I got to know him, I saw that there was a familiarity and that I had never known that there wasn't a familiarity you know, with my own dad, you know, despite Mm -hmm. our great bond of love, there wasn't a sense of, there were qualities in me and traits in me. My mother-in-law once uh, had had known my mother quite well and found her very difficult as most people did. And she one time said to me, sweetheart, I don't know how you survived. You must have a hell of a constitution. And this is, I don't know, maybe a dozen years ago, I remember thinking, she's right. I do. Why? (laughs) Because that constitution did not make sense given my two parents. Mm-hmm. So there there were just these kind of subtle disconnects and questions. Something that I also think is interesting in the book is that the the Judaism aspect of it, that you were so, you were raised um, Orthodox, you know, that your your father had a very illustrious history in the Jewish community. And all the trauma associated with even this, this line from Mrs. Kushner, I mean, that, that the religion itself and the culture of the religion has so much to do with this, you know, traumatic event. 
and and identifying with that and then learning that, oh, half of me isn't identified with that traumatic event. And in the book, you talk about getting a tattoo and baking Christmas cookies at a certain point. So how has that shifted your idea of you as, I mean, you are, you, you realized that your mother was Jewish, you are Jewish, but how has that shifted your idea of that part of your identity? Yeah, no, that's a great, that's a great question. I, a couple of things. One is that the tattoo for me, I don't think had that much to do with the Jewish, non-Jewish question. It had to do with a feeling of wanting to mark on my body the fact that I now understood my body. You know, like that, that there was a kind of, it was a feeling that I had very, very early on. I was still in San Francisco and I was practically walking into, you know, the wall- walls and like falling off curbs and I was so disoriented and I passed by a tattoo parlor and I thought, I just wrote on an index card, tattoo. <laughs> I, and, and a year and a half later, I got one. It wasn't, I didn't go into the tattoo parlor <laughs> and do it right then. Although I was in a state of mind where I could have done that. The Christmas co- cookies were more of a joke. It was sort of a feeling of, I like Christmas cookies. Why right. can't I bake Christmas cookies? But the feeling of having always had this otherness around my Judaism and never understanding why that has evaporated because I understand why now, which has the paradoxical and really interesting effect of making me feel more Jewish because it's just not this big question mark. Like why why is this always being commented on? Why do I feel I come from these impeccable orthodox credentials? Why do I feel like I don't belong in this world? I wrote in my memoir devotion Uh, There's a scene in which my husband and I are going to a wedding of a cousin of mine, and it's in Muncie, New York, which is one of those places that has facilities where the Orthodox, the black hat Orthodox crowd go to get married. And women go in one door and men go in another door. Women and men are separated. There's a lot of ritual involved. And, you know, and I always stuck out completely in those situations. I'm not wearing a wig. I mean, much less, you know, I'm blonde and I, like, I, I'm not wearing stockings and my legs are bare and my skirt's probably too short. And it's all those feelings. And my husband and I were milling about with the whole crowd before they were about to go in. And this other, this couple uh, showed up and they were the only other couple there who didn't look like they had come straight out of like a Chaim Potok movie. And, <laughs> and they, were, they were in a Volvo with like, Vermont plates and they came up to us and the, and the wife came over to me and she said, which door do we go in? And I said, well, and I'm very proudly because it's my family. I said, well, you know, you go in there and your husband goes in there and she said, oh, I am so glad there are other non-Jewish people at this wedding. Uh, like that was so a classic funny. kind of thing that would happen to me. And so... Yeah. I now understand it and I own it and it feels really different to me. And I don't know how that's going to evolve, evolve over the course of the rest of my life, but it just, um, it, it had, there was such sense making involved uh, in terms of what I had always felt that didn't make sense. I wonder, how did you relate to your own physicality and your own looks when you were younger? Because it seemed like people were constantly... I mean, people do this to little girls and women all the time. You know, girl, child is really exempt from this kind of treatment. But it just seems like constantly people are reminding you of what you look like and your hair and your eyes. How did you, how did that form your understanding of your own body? How much time do you have? I have a lot of time. (laughs) We have a couple of minutes left. I mean, it was, I was very objectified. Mm -hmm. Um, But if you think about my hidden history which is that I was donor-conceived in an era where the child was essentially the prize. Nobody thought about the rights of the child. Nobody thought about the child as a human being. 
The child was the goal. And then the child was supposed to just go on and be absorbed into a family and, and what the child didn't know wouldn't hurt her, right? So I think that that was the underpinning of all that. Mm -hmm. And then I came out, you know, looking like Heidi, you know, it kind of wandered over from the Alps into, you know, <laughs> into the shtetl of my relatives. And it was a very complicated thing for me because on the one hand, I understood that it was meant to be flattering when people would say, you don't look Jewish. Mm -hmm. And that was really uncomfortable because... At various times, that felt sort of flattering because what people were saying essentially was, you're pretty in a non-Jewish looking way. Yeah. Um, I knew that that's what they meant. Um, that made me uncomfortable and ashamed also. And I think I had a very arm's length relationship with my own body. Like really, I mean, it's probably some of what made me a writer because I escaped into my head and lived there for a really long time and was very confused by those kinds of comments. And it felt like, what does it mean that people are saying this to me? And why does it matter so much? And I mean, I became an actress. I'm a terrible actress. Mm -hmm. And when I was in, you know, high school and in college, I, you know, modeled and I was, I did television commercials and I was even in a movie and I was on a soap opera. And it was an absurd thing for me to be doing given my own internal life and who I was as a, as a human being. But I sort of felt like it's all I had. Interesting that you had to capitalize on the looks. While yeah, you that's had that's them. that that's what I that's what I had. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, the other thing I mean related to that is your life as a writer, the way that you developed as a writer, and Rabbi Wolpe's question is a good one because it does seem like chicken or the egg kind of situation, but it also seems like from your story where you know this poet Mark Strand, a very very famous poet sort of announces at the table at a prominent literary conference, no, you're not Jewish. You're not Jewish. He just keeps, and he sort of just says that. And it struck me that it seemed like, oh, her writing career somehow all of a sudden became almost inextricably, inextricably linked with your looks. That's very unusual. Yeah. And when, when my first novel came out, my publisher, you know, I was 27 years old. Mm -hmm. And my publisher, I'll just say it, spent $7,000 on my author photo and didn't send me on a tour. <laughs> wow. My and, God. Why? And, and it was, and it was actually was beautiful. And it was an actually this kind of like crazy ass backwards situation where there, the, the book jacket, the, the front cover of the jacket was um, a photograph that they had taken of a model and it had, my first novel was called Playing With Fire. Nobody should read it. I was learning how to write in public. But it was, so it was this this young young woman on the cover and she looked an awful lot like me. Mm -hmm. And so when they went to the photographer, they showed him the cover and said, she needs to not look like that. And he's like, but I could actually take a picture. I could have taken that picture of her for, I mean, it, they're practically doppelgangers. So it was, it was something that I had to live down it was some it was something that I had to grow into as a writer and reach a point in a way it was formative because I had to fight very, very hard as a literary writer to get to a place that would render that kind of comment moot um and I don't think it's any accident that I'm fifty six years old, you know so you know, as a woman walking down the street now, I'm pretty much invisible. And it's just it's just the truth. And it's it's actually really a kind of perfect poetic situation that it's at the point where I'm getting to have 
the um, my loudest voice in the the world and in the literary world at this point. It's like I had to live through that in some way. Mm. But it was the story of my life. Just to wrap up quickly, I, I I'm wondering when this was happening. Because I could only imagine as a writer and as someone who's written memoirs, you must have been thinking, you, I mean, could this not have been like, bingo, this is amazing, this is going to make a great <laughs> book. Like, how quickly were you writing this as it was happening to you? I started writing and researching really quickly because there was a sense of urgency around it, urgency around the fact that anyone I might still be able to speak to uh, in my research was very, very old. Uh, and also a feeling of wanting to capture as much as I could of the rawness of what I was experiencing. But the uh, the feeling actually of, I understood that it was a great story. My terror was I wanted to do it justice. And the fact that it was my story was almost incidental. I felt like I had been handed this sort of tender and beautiful and complicated story that had so much to do with identity and what makes a parent a parent and what makes a family a family. And there was really something to dig into and write about. And I just didn't know if I could. I kept saying to my husband, I just want to do the story justice. I, th I think you I did. Think you did. Yeah. Thank yeah. you so much, Danny, for being here today with us. Thank you. I so enjoyed the conversation. Thank you, Danny. We've been speaking with Danny Shapiro. Her latest book is Inheritance, a memoir of genealogy, paternity, and love. Thank you so much. You've been listening to the LARB Radio Hour. Subscribe to our podcast in iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. If you like the show, leave us a comment and tell us what you think. The LARB Radio Hour's executive producers are Eric Newman, Medea Ocher, and Kate Wolf. Our engineer is William Broughton. Production assistance is provided by William Broughton, Eleanor Duke, Lauren Kinney, and Jake Levins. Our theme song is by composer Imogen Teasley. Special thanks to Alan Minsky, who is no one's moral conscience, for production assistance, and to Emerson College for the use of their studio in Hollywood. Tom Lutz is the publisher and editor-in-chief of the Los Angeles Review of Books.